0: Welcome to Healthy Outcomes, a Baker Tilly podcast, where we'll informally discuss topics such as financial sustainability, value-based care, cybersecurity, and more. Baker Tilly is a leading advisory, tax, and assurance firm dedicated to helping healthcare organizations be financially sustainable. Each episode will bring you a topic or guest that will help you win now and anticipate tomorrow. Let's get started.
1: Hi, my name is Mark Ross and I am the leader of Baker Tilly's healthcare provider practice. Joining me for today's podcast is David Gregory. David is one of the leaders in Baker Tilly's healthcare consulting practice. Today, David and I will be discussing value-based care, three words that mean a lot in today's healthcare environment. As most in our audience may be aware, value-based care ties payments for the delivery of healthcare to the quality of care, and rewards providers for both efficiency, which would be healthcare spend, and effectiveness, which would be the quality or the outcomes achieved related to the care provided. Value-based care can be and is driven by Medicare. Value-based care arrangements are also driven in a significant way today by commercial payers as well. So value-based care is not just a governmental concept. I'm gonna be asking David a series of questions related to value-based care, VBC arrangements, et cetera, starting with, you know, what can healthcare providers do to ensure a higher rate of success with value-based care arrangements? We're gonna talk about what providers can do to assess their readiness to participate in arrangements that have downside risk. We'll talk about the care continuum and what does value-based care, what do these arrangements mean to providers across the care continuum, acute care providers, post-acute providers, et cetera. We'll touch on the importance of the electronic medical records or EMR system. We'll talk about the challenges faced by providers today as they seek to expand their participation in value-based care arrangements. And then finally, I'm gonna ask David to get his crystal ball out and talk about the future state of value-based care. What does value-based care look like for the typical healthcare system in the year 2030. So, David, I'm going to get ready to fire away at you. Here's my, my first question. All right. Bring it on. But what can they do to ensure a higher rate of success or, or optimizing their reimbursement, David, with value-based care arrangements, right? What, what investments might providers need to make to, to ensure that higher rate of success? And what are some of the core business capabilities necessary to achieve success?
0: That's a mouthful, but all, all excellent questions, Mark. So um, let me start with the maybe the easiest of the three and and uh, the most relevant here and now. Right, we estimate that probably three quarters of the population has some sort of simple VBC program. It might be upside only, but there are metrics involved as you've already outlined, Mark. The you know the, the key is getting some metrics on paper uh, and then having the parties uh, measure those metrics and evaluate success and and determine whether or not an incentive payment is going to be coming the provider's way. And I think of it with the three Ms, uh, manageable, measurable, and meaningful. Um, And what I mean by that is, is that providers should really kind of take more control than they do now with the payers with regard to what metrics are actually going to be put in the contract and to make sure that the provider can manage those metrics, they can measure those metrics, and that they're meaningful metrics because if they're not meaningful, they're not going to really contribute to your o- overall VBC program. And there is the ability that the, the payers are willing to talk to you as a provider about which metrics should be in play. We've heard all too often that a large insurer, you know, said that uh, you know they want to measure fifty metrics across eight different specialty types, and that the provider is eligible for an incentive. If they go fifty for fifty in those metrics, right, and and that is not um, a recipe for success. Number one, because it's very difficult to, you know, to measure that number of of metrics. It's also very difficult to hit those number of metrics, um, depending upon how mature your health system is. And so we we highly recommend that uh, you look at a dozen metrics, right? Uh, you know, look at a look at a manageable number of metrics make sure that you can measure them and aren't completely relying on the payer you know to do the measurement and like i said make sure that they're meaningful and they're contributing to quality of care you know at your institution so so fairly straightforward stuff to to make sure that you're going to have some success with vbc is to keep the number of metrics that you're being you know judged on to somewhat of a minimum and that's a negotiation right i mean the payer may Come back and forth, and you may start. You may start at six, and they may start at forty, and and you figure out some sort of happy medium there. But you know, having that you know negotiation not on rates, right, but actually on the metrics that you're going to be judged on, you know, can be can be really important in terms of investments. There are you know all kinds of investments that that providers need to make to to optimize their chances for VBC success. I mean. Obviously, an EMR system, and we might touch on EMRs a little bit later, Mark, but certainly that's the backbone of a VBC program, you know, to have uh, the right data getting to the right place at the right time to the right patient, and an EMR system will enable that. It, it, it's not a panacea. Um, there's lots of things that have to happen around that EMR for success, but it's, a, it's an important backbone. That's clearly a, a significant investment for, for most providers, for sure. And and then there's also investment in talent. There are things like uh, provider analytics talent that may not be at the system right now. Even when you talk about uh, more sophisticated VBC arrangements, having uh, an actuarial assessment can be very important to understand what you're committing to, you know, because as these programs get a little more complex, uh, you might be committing to something more than you really understood um, and, and having you know, that kind of perspective can be very important as kind of you, you advance through the uh, the process. And then also developing your, your network of providers. You know, you as a, you know, the acute care um, hospital is typically kind of the center of the universe from a health system standpoint, but there are lots of provider types and specialties around that acute care hospital that enables the care to be rendered. And sometimes that requires investment to make sure that you have the right Ah, uh, home care agencies, the right post-acute providers, skilled nursing facilities, and and the like. And so there are some some investment uh, needs there as well. And then also, lastly, investing in your physicians. You know, your physicians make probably eighty percent or more of the important decisions that get made in terms of resource consumption and quality. Mm-hmm. And you may have to invest in in, in your physicians, not necessarily in, just in terms of direct compensation, but other services and supports around the physicians to make sure that they're as educated as possible and getting data on a real-time basis. And that can be really important too. And then in terms of core business capabilities, because this was a three-part question mark, and I'm going to uh, you know, hit the third part here. So, so core business capabilities. I, I mean, clearly IT, I, I've touched on data analytics, but one thing I haven't touched on yet is patient engagement, right? The uh, you know, health systems absolutely need to be investing dollars and time um, and talent, you know, into better patient engagement programs, right? And it's not simply just making sure that the patient gets a text before their annual physical to make sure that they're getting their lab work um, on a timely basis, right? Uh, you know, that's a very simple example, but it's. It's more than just texting patients and prompting them to get the right preventative care, right? It's a, it's being more involved. It's being more proactive. As Mark said, we're trying to turn around this reactive system that really our system today overreacts. You know, when something happens to a patient, we overreact. We throw them in the ICU. We throw all these resources at them, right, uh, in the acute care setting, which is the most expensive setting. And then we set them free you know, into the world oftentimes without much guidance as to how they're supposed to manage their their new condition when they leave the hospital, right? and And we end up overreacting to a patient's needs. And to to get to a preventative mode, which is what Mark said is really the whole goal here, you need to be involved with the patient on a um on a regular basis. I mean, ideally, not daily. It, it depends on the needs of the patient for sure. And we'll talk about, kind of profiling your patient populations being very important, but um, you know that's another area of investment and attention that's really important is, uh, is patient engagement. So yeah so I, I, I think uh, Mark, I got to all three of those for sure and I think you've got some more stuff to throw at me, right?
1: Yeah, and, and David, it's interesting when you say patient engagement, right? I, the concept of, of social determinants of health right have been talked about for for a lot of years. And healthcare systems need, I mean, they, they absolutely need to consider social determinants of health when they're attempting to elevate the, the level of, of patient engagement, you know, food insecurity, housing, transportation. I mean, as we know, social determinants of health can drive significant healthcare spend. So any any comments on that, David, relative to, again, the tie-in or the linkage between patient engagement and social determinants of health and what, what systems can do?
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a great correlation between the two. And you know, the, the literature is replete with evidence that social determinants of health are actually more important than the way you access the medical system in terms of how many resources you need throughout your life and, and how much you cost throughout your life cycle. Social determinants of health are definitely north of 50 and some say north of 60 percent of resource consumption. When you're engaging in the patient in a you know meaningful way through these patient engagement programs we're talking about, you do have more opportunity to really understand you know what their social situation is what their uh, food situation is right what their housing situation is their employment situation their income situation right their their emotional um, you know situation right and mm-hmm. and uh, and all those things feed into optimizing uh, you know a value based program so patient engagement and social determinants of health are uh, you know really important and and you're seeing you know payers get involved in affordable housing right the upmcs of the world and and some of the other leaders on the payer and the provider side are getting involved in you know making sure that patients have a roof over their head making sure that patients you know have the food that they need right and who would have thunk um you know a decade ago that that you would you would have major stakeholders in the healthcare system you know kind of crossing over into the social support system but it behooves them you know to get involved in the social support system in order to kind of optimize the patient's experience and to optimize their health for sure so that that's a good correlation mark
1: sure and then and then finally dave just on the business capabilities thing the other thing that comes to my mind as i think about value based care it's really the relationship between the provider and the payer right even though i know that you know, life sciences, I mentioned earlier, med device, pharma, other companies may get connected into some of these arrangements. But I would think payer engagement too, right? Engagement with the payers is certainly a core business capability that that providers need just to, I mean, it's got to elevate their chance of success if they're, if they're doing that, right? Engaging with the payer in an appropriate way.
0: Yeah. And I, you know, I mean, the payer provider relationship has historically been contentious and there still is some stress in that system and that relationship. But you need to manage that and 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 get to the point where you're having deeper dialogue with the payer about what data they can share with you that they historically haven't shared, um, et cetera. And and we know, Mark, that payers are actually looking at buying Epic licenses. Payers are now looking at purchasing their own EMR systems so that they can create the pipes between them and the providers and kind of up the ante in terms of data exchange. Um, and that's going to be really cool when all the medical record stuff and you know, all the information that's kind of siloed right now and and is one of the major reasons why more risk isn't transferred from payers to providers. You know, once those gloves come off and the data is flowing more freely, which the 2030 crystal ball would say that uh, by then that, you know, the payers are going to have an Epic-like EMR system um, and they're going to be able to receive whatever the providers are willing to send to them. And there's an open free flow of information that's got some level of security to it. So we're not talking about breaching everybody's PHI rights and things like that, but uh, but absolutely starting those conversations now and, and uh, engaging the payers and letting them know what you plan to do. And, and actually, we have seen, there is precedent set for providers approaching payers and saying, I really need to beef up this program on my side, the provider side. And hey, payer, you know, could we talk about a little bit of joint funding of that program because it's going to benefit both of us. Um, if if you help us, you know, develop a a patient engagement program or or some sort of care management, you know, program, et cetera. And and payers are, you know, willing to talk about that. And there's precedent set for them actually uh, doing some funding of, of those kinds of programs, joint funding.
1: Yeah, no, good stuff, David. Good stuff. So, so you mentioned in some of your commentary there, you mentioned actuarial concepts or considerations. So when we think about Again, DBC arrangements, value-based care arrangements with downside risk. You know, how, how should providers number one assess the readiness, David, to to do that, right, to enter into a contract with downside risk? And are there actuarial considerations? And I think you answered this in the prior question. That certainly there there likely are actuarial considerations relative to those sorts of of contracts. But what what what's your thought on the on the risk readiness side of things? Yeah, I, we, you know, we
0: we did a, a VBC webinar about a month ago and, and surveyed an audience of about 150 health system participants, and uh, about 20% of them said that 15% or more of their revenue is subject to downside risk, right? And so you might say, well, that's not much of the system, but but you know, it is. It's approaching about a quarter of the system, 15% plus revenue at risk, and that starts to become meaningful, right? Sure. And, and so, you know, we, we have to look at those players and, and understand what allowed them to do that, right? What, what, what allowed them to have the confidence, you know, to take on risk, uh, downside risk, and have they been successful? And I'll tell you one thing, it's a journey. There are a couple of best practice uh, provider clients of ours that are, you know, knee deep into value-based care with downside risk, and it was a seven to eight year journey from from when they said, I'm, I'm dedicated to taking on downside risk, but I have to do X, Y, and Z to get there. And it's a multi-year process. So I, I do think for all providers listening to this, this is not a situation where you can just become ready for risk overnight. It's multi-years depending upon how advanced you are You know, right now. And and it's an important journey to to start sooner rather than later, because Mark is right. It's not just a government phenomenon, right? I mean, he said earlier that this is not just about Medicare driving some value-based programs. The commercial plans, if you talk about the ACOs, I think, Mark, you talked about several hundred ACOs are, are in the Medicare um, line of business. There's double that in the commercial business. We're approaching 1,500 ACOs nationwide. And the bigger bucket of those ACOs are, quote-unquote, commercial ACOs, right? And so, so this is not a federal phenomenon, as Mark already mentioned. It's commercial. And the payers have nothing but more incentive every day to push that risk your way. And it can be a differentiator if you're able to take on that risk before your competition is. And it's smart risk to take. You know, that can be a real differentiator for you. And and Mark, you mentioned actuarial. If you're going to enter into sophisticated shared savings models with downside risk or even up to capitation, which is a per member per month, and you're basically responsible for everything that happens to that patient, and all you're getting is a fixed patient per month flat reimbursement, you know, you you really need to understand kind of the, 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 the economic and the quality risk associated with taking on a certain population. You need to understand how many members do you need in order to actually make that work, right? Yeah, you know, Getting a 1,000 capitated members is a recipe for disaster. That's not enough membership. You know, you could have two people get really sick and blow your entire budget. You know, you need to have five or 10,000 patients um, in a shared savings or capitation program, you know, to take a serious run at success. And and then there's other actuarial factors that need to be assessed in terms of what is the diagnostic profile of the population that you're looking at? Um, How many of them would be considered super chronic? Right. You know, and and the old adage is, guys, and then we'll move on to the next question. You really only need to manage about 15 percent of the population that's under your control to make a difference, because it's the old 80-20 rule you know, that approximately 20% of the patients are driving about 80% of the cost. And that's true in every population that's large enough. Um, And the actuaries can help you better understand that too, right? So it's it's one of those things where, you know, be cautious about entering into these arrangements. They are very doable. They do require investments for sure. There's a lot of moving parts and you need to be methodical, you know, about about moving towards it. All
1: right, David, so just a couple... Comments I, I'm looking at you to make here, think about on, on the care continuum, right? So as we think about the overall care continuum, you start in the you know the hospital setting, as as you mentioned, the hospital's really the pilot, right? That's where maybe these episodes of care can start, or at least the more costly episodes of care. And then you move into the post-acute care setting, et cetera. How do each of those providers, David, play a role in these value-based care arrangements? And I understand that you know, if you've seen one value-based care contract, you've seen one value-based care contract. They can all look different, right? And the and the, the performance metrics can be different. But how should providers be looking at these contracts and how they can impact them individually in their own businesses? Yeah.
0: Post-acute providers are, they're, they're a pretty sophisticated group. The skilled nursing facilities, the CCRCs, the home care agencies, et cetera. And they know that, you know, they need to distinguish themselves from a quality and economic standpoint. And I think the 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 biggest thing from their viewpoint is is that they need to measure their, their own performance a little bit differently than they have in the past. That's true of hospitals too, but you know, home care agencies, you know, SNFs, et cetera, need to be looking at more quality metrics, not just length of stay or number of home visits and or the functional mobility of the patient after a certain regimen of, of home care, you know, et cetera, right? Those post-acute providers need to challenge themselves. To really develop their own value proposition, because gone are the days where a hospital is going to work with 50 different home care agencies, right? I mean, we, we all know—we've we've, we've talked to health systems that just over time, they've developed relationships with multiple, multiple number of—I'm just using home care agencies as an example here, right? But as the, the health system gets more and more serious about taking on downside risk, they're going to want to pick the winners and and the ones that they want to go to war with in a, in a downside risk arrangement and you don't want to be left on the outside looking in right from from a you know from a home care provider standpoint so i i guess we're you know just really encouraging kind of post acute providers to you know to kind of look in the mirror and and really develop your value proposition and like i said it's not just length of stay in the in the skilled environment it's not just you know, some sort of simple quality outcome in the home care area, there's some quality metrics, there's some economic metrics, and you really do need to kind of figure out how to differentiate yourselves from your competition so that when the big health system comes knocking on your door and says, I wanna pick the best performing home care agency, SNF, et cetera, you've got a value proposition to show them. You know, that that's super important. Uh, otherwise you could lose out on referral sources and be on the outside looking in you know, to, to really lucrative value-based arrangements going down the road.
1: Sure. Th- these arrangements impact every provider along the care continuum. So as you said, David, they all have to look in the mirror and figure out how they impact them. The, the level of communication they're having with other providers, right, along the, the care yeah. continuum, specifically when they're entered into, you know, are engaging in maybe some of these bundled payment arrangements and and, and other value-based care arrangements, which again, require that level of communication. It just it would just seem to me, obviously, to the providers out there, that the level of communication they need to have, not only with each other, but with the payers, just super critical to their success in these types of arrangements. So, David, you, you know, you touched on already. I'm not sure if there's any other any other comments to make here, but, but certainly the importance of the EMR, you know, system, the output from from that system, and you know, we we at, at Baker Tilly talk about optimizing the EMR, right? Making sure that you're maximizing all the functionality that that EMR uh, can provide to you you need to make sure that that EMR is providing that to you. And, and I think, you know, all too often, maybe we see that providers aren't optimizing their, their EMR. So, so any other comments on that, David, beyond what you've already touched on?
0: Only to say, be careful. You know, do, do not think that the purchase of an EMR system solves everything. In fact, in some cases, it can create more headaches. You need to be diligent in implementing it. And uh, it that is, the, we've already said, it's the backbone of a value-based care program but it has to be nursed, it, you know, it has to be nourished. It, it, you know, it's it's an ongoing work in progress, right? And do not get a false sense of security that because you put the base EMR system in place and you're able to produce bills in the fee-for-service world, that that means you've succeeded, right? Because uh, there's a lot more to go to really use it in a value-based program. So, you know, just push yourselves and and don't get a false sense of security around the success of kind of your first, you know, implementation in that regard, but I think otherwise, Mark. I think we've we've definitely covered off on that.
1: Yeah, and, and I, I think again, David, and some of the commentary that you've already provided, we we've touched on. Although maybe you want to expand a little bit on on some of the challenges, right, that you know faced by providers, and they you know seeking to expand their participation in these in these VBC arrangements. You know, you talked about the investment in IT, the investment in talent, the investment in EMR. Certainly, they can be certainly perceived as challenges, especially in this current environment where providers are struggling, some providers are struggling financially, right? So so having the funding to make those investments can, can be a bit of a challenge. But but any other challenges there, David, relative to, you know, I know physician engagement certainly is a is yep. something you may have touched on, but I know that that I don't want to say it's a challenge, you know, achieving physician engagement, but elevating the level of physician engagement, I think takes takes time and energy too. Yeah. I I was just, I would just use the word scale that i think one of the biggest
0: challenges other than some of the stuff we've already reviewed is scaling it there are a lot of pilots going on you know where a payer and a provider say let's try this you know let's do this but scaling it across your your enterprise and this is a challenge for both the payer and the provider you know that you have to think about that next step taking a, you know a couple of smaller pilots that are somewhat manageable and you can also can almost manage them on an excel spreadsheet uh, you don't want to do that but you could but but then getting it to be a program is kind of the next stage of maturity. And it, it just requires some strategic thinking and some, some good IT talent um, and some analytics talent to really scale it. So I, I just challenge the audience to think about, you know, not just the pilots you might be participating in, but how, how do I get this to actually be, you know, kind of a program wide thing? And again, I say that the payers are also, you know, struggling with that in terms of the the scale. But that would be the one challenge we hadn't mentioned yet, Mark.
1: Okay, good. Well, David, we're we're at the crystal ball question now, and so if you got your crystal ball out, and and you and I, as you know, David joked around over the years, have joked around quite a bit about you know value-based care. When's it coming? People keep talking about it. It's not here yet, right? It's not. But but I will tell you, over the last several years, and when I say several, you know, over the last three to five years, it would appear that the the pace with which VBC arrangements are being entered into has significantly expanded, right, or accelerated, if you will, and yeah. and so value based care you know is 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 certainly here to stay we talked about the expansion of of ACOs not only in the medicare side but the but the commercial side of the equation so it it's going to just continue i think to pick up steam and pick up momentum so as you think about the healthcare system in the US in 2030 and and some of the goals ultimately the goals of what a value based care arrangement is supposed to be doing for the healthcare system in this country you know what does it look like what what do those arrangements look like for a healthcare system yeah, you know,
0: there's a couple things, and and Mark, you're right that certainly it's taken longer than we would have expected because uh, you know the fee for service machinery was so entrenched, and health system CFOs still pay the bills off of significant fee for service contracts, right? And so it's hard, it's hard to get off of that, but but basically the system has gotten off the fee for service train, and it's here to stay for sure. And I. So you know, in 2030, I mean, there are a couple things, and then we can wrap up. But you know, the hospital at home concept, right? So, so Medicare is actually endorsing a hospital at home program, right? They're encouraging hospitals to identify patients that you could basically just turn them around. You know, they show up in the ER, but if they meet certain criteria, they're going to turn around and go home, and they're going to receive their inpatient care in their home. And I think you know, by 2030. You know there there could be twenty five percent or more of patients basically stay home um, and the hospital comes to them instead of them going to the hospital. And there's a lot of economies of scale in that. And what enables that is technology, right? Because we've got smart beds, we've got smart pumps, we've got smart everything, we've got healthcare big brother, um you know, in your bedroom, in your kitchen, in your scale, et cetera, right? so we're we're actually able to do that. And it's not a stretch, you know, to say by 2030, that at least a quarter of us might have our hospital experience in the comfort of our own home. So that's one thing. And and there's major implications to that, you know, for sure. The other thing is that, you know, bundle payments have been pretty much procedure-based up until now. But I, 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 you know, there's already evidence of this, so it might not even take to 2030. But, you know, bundle payment, Programs are going to become more diagnosis driven um, and less procedure driven, right? Like right now, a bundle payment is based off of a total joint replacement, for an example, right? Well, that bundle payment is too late. I mean, if you need a total joint replacement, you know, that means you probably spent years abusing your knees. (laughs) You know, (laughs) and, and 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 the bundle payment is there to save a few bucks on a really expensive procedure that you probably could have avoided and so what about a bundled payment program on the diagnosis of osteoarthritis so if you get diagnosed in your 40s as a weekend warrior um and and the doctor says you got osteoarthritis man let's let's figure this out and let's avoid you know getting to that joint replacement in your 50s that's a bundled payment you know that's going to move the needle you know for sure and so i i think you know and and that that can also happen in the cardiac space and the gi space right there's plenty of opportunities and that gets back to Mark's point about prevention. Instead of waiting for the big procedure to happen and then trying to save a few bucks on that expensive procedure, let's get way out in front of it um, and, and even try to avoid you know that expensive procedure. And then the last thing I'll say, which kind of reinforces what we've said a couple times, you're going to see super well-developed uh, patient engagement slash compliance programs. The, the, the thing that we have not licked yet is getting patients to do what they're supposed to do, they don't listen to their doctors very well. There are studies that show that most of us don't listen to our doctor very well. We don't take the, our medications like we should. Uh, we don't do our rehab like we should. And it's all about changing that behavior. And that's the next way to save money is to actually get patients to, to change the way they manage their own care. And so, those patient engagement programs by 2030, health systems, you know, co funded by payers, are going to have some really sophisticated kind of high tech. Patient engagement programs—it'll be—it'll uh, be—it'll be cool to watch. But those are a couple of thoughts in terms of what things might look like uh, coming up,
1: and that's it. David, some really neat stuff from your crystal ball. I mean, the hospital at home concept, you know, patient engagement, and how technology is going to be used by providers in the future uh, to achieve a higher level of, of patient engagement. Really, really neat stuff to think about, not only relative to the future, but even the current state you know everything you've talked about in our in our dialogue today David but i i hopefully a lot of information that's been interesting to our audience so i just have a couple of brief closing comments you know according to data from the healthcare payment learning and action network approximately 60% and this is you know today i think it's 2021 data but approximately 60% of medicare program and commercial payments are outside the traditional fee for service payment models So approximately 60% of Medicare and commercial payments have some sort of link to value and and quality. And that percentage, that 60% was estimated using data from payers covering approximately 70% of the covered lives in the US. So that's more than 200 million lives in the US. That's how that that percentage was, was arrived at. So a nice sample, if you will. So the message here, and I know we've said it multiple times, it has taken some time to evolve and it will continue to evolve but value-based care is certainly here to stay. We believe these arrangements will become more pervasive across all healthcare providers as we move forward. Providers that haven't proactively engaged or or have been somewhat reluctant to engage in value-based care arrangements, you should consider entering into the game in a more meaningful way. But if you're going to do it, if you're going to enter into new arrangements, specifically those arrangements with downside risk, remember the investments and the core business capabilities that we discussed that are absolutely necessary for any provider to have in order to achieve success with their value-based care arrangements. So a lot to think about. So David, again, thanks thanks for spending some time with me today. I want to thank our listeners for joining this podcast. If you found this episode to be useful and would like to listen to more episodes about hot topics in the healthcare industry, please subscribe to our Healthy Outcomes podcast or learn more by visiting us at bakertilly.com.
0: Thank you for listening. To receive notifications when new episodes are available, please subscribe on whichever platform you get your podcasts. For additional resources, check out bakertilly.com.